This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Evang me sutang, thus have I heard. Ekang samayang bhagava sabatiyang viharati jetavane anatapindikasa arame. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anattapindika's Park. These are the opening words of hundreds of suttas from the Pali Canon. That's how I first heard of Anattapindika in Sutta Study Classes with Shaila. This series is about great disciples of the Buddha, but Anattapindika was not a monk. He was a lay follower, a banker, as was his father and also his brother-in-law. He's remembered as a very generous man, foremost in generosity among the Buddha's followers. I certainly admire the monastics in this series, but I especially appreciate the stories of this householder. Anatapindika had a wife and children. He often visited the Buddha, but he also had to care for his home and family and to attend to his affairs in the world. As a retired professor, I have some research skills, but nothing to do with ancient India. For this talk, I've relied on the suttas, the discourses themselves, as well as Malalasekara's Dictionary of Pali Proper Names, Helmut Hecker's chapter on Anathapindika from the book Great Disciples of the Buddha, and Bhikkhunyanamoli's book The Life of the Buddha According to the Pali Canon, plus a few other sources. I struggled a bit with how to present this material. I did not want to present Anathapindika's story simply as historical fact, but neither would I want to treat it as mere myth or legend. I find inspiration in the story of Anathapindika as an actual person who lived in India and knew the Buddha, but I'm sure that his story has been embellished as it's been retold, and I do not believe that everything reported about him actually happened. I considered trying to tease apart what I thought was fact versus embellishment, but I rejected that approach for a couple of reasons. First, I'm utterly unqualified to carry it out, and second, and more importantly, the many elaborations add beauty and meaning to the story. As one example, yakas are non-human spirits that make an appearance from time to time in the suttas. In the account of Anathapindika's first meeting with the Buddha, a sutta describes how he became afraid and a friendly yaka named Sivaka appeared and spoke to him in verse, encouraging him to go on. Whether I believe in yakas is immaterial. If I left Sivaka's verses out of the story, something would be lost. I told Drew, my partner, that I was trying to think this through, and he wisely suggested that I consider what the suttas have to say about right speech. Here's my favorite answer to that question from the Book of the Fives in the Numerical Discourses, Sutta 198. If speech has five marks, it is well spoken, not badly spoken, blameless and above reproach by the wise. What five? It is speech that is timely, true, gentle, purposeful, and spoken with a mind of loving kindness. So, speaking to you as part of the series, I'm comfortable that my speech is timely and purposeful, and I can strive to speak gently and with the mind of loving kindness. As to truth, I've just explained that literal truth is not my goal. 
but I hope you'll find Anabindika's story as inspiring as I have, and that you'll find the teachings embedded in his story to be relevant and helpful for all of us today. Wearing my professor hat for a moment, let me mention one more concern about truthfulness. I'll be using some quotations and paraphrases this evening that I've taken directly from various sources. I've cited those sources in my notes here, and I'll mention a few, but I plan to omit most of them. This is my disclaimer that I may be offering direct quotes or lightly edited passages from other people's work without alerting you that I'm doing so. I'll be glad to answer any questions about sources afterwards. I should also mention that a lot of references are to a collection of suttas called the Anguttara Nikaya, or numerical discourses. These are organized into the Book of the Ones, the Book of the Twos, the Book of the Threes, and so on. So rather than saying, for example, Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Fives, Sutta number 198, from now on I'll simply abbreviate that to something like AN 5.198. So if you hear these AN number dot number, that's just a reference to the suttas in the numerical discourses. So, how does Anathapindika's story begin? Anathapindika first met the Buddha when both he and Gautama Buddha were young men, about three years after the Buddha's enlightenment. Anathapindika lived in or near Savati, capital of the Indian province of Kosala, but he had gone to Rajagaha, capital of the neighboring province of Magadha, on business. As was his custom, when he arrived in Rajagata, he headed for the home of his brother-in-law, where he had always received a warm welcome. This time, however, something was different. Here's how Bhikkhu Nyanamoli tells the story. When Anathapindika arrived, he found the merchant directing his servants and retainers. Now get up early, cook gruel and rice and sauces, make dessert sweets. Anathapindika thought, Formerly, when I came, this householder used to lay aside all his engagements to welcome me. Now he seems distracted with ordering his servants about. Is there a taking in marriage? Or a giving in marriage? Or is there some great sacrifice? <clears throat> or has he invited Senia Bimbasara, king of Magadha, for tomorrow with a full retinue? When the merchant had finished directing his servants, he went to Anathapindika and welcomed him. Then, when he had sat down beside him, Anathapindika told him his thoughts. He replied, There is no marriage, nor has the king been invited for tomorrow with full retinue. But I have a great sacrifice. I have invited for tomorrow the Sangha of Bhikkhus, headed by the Buddha, the Enlightened One. Do you say the Buddha? I say the Buddha. Do you say the Buddha? I say the Buddha. Do you say the Buddha? <laughs> I say the Buddha. This news, the Buddha, the Buddha, is hard to come by in the world. Is it possible to go and see this blessed one accomplished and fully enlightened now at this time? This is not the time to go and see him. You can see him already tomorrow. Then Anathapindika thought, early tomorrow I shall be able to see a blessed one accomplished and fully enlightened. I'm going to continue in my own words. But first, I need to explain something about Anathapindika's name. The man known as Anathapindika was actually named Sudatta. Anathapindika is an epithet meaning one who gives alms to the unprotected, or more simply, feeder of the destitute. Even before he met the Buddha, Sudatta was always called Anathapindika on account of his great generosity. 
commentaries report that 500 seats were always ready in his house for any guests who might come. And in addition to feeding 100 monks every day, he provided for guests, people of the village, invalids, and anyone else in need. So we left Anathapindaka, or Sudatta, having just heard from his brother-in-law that there was an enlightened one, a Buddha, in the vicinity, and that the next morning would be a fitting time for Anathapindaka to go and meet him. Here's what happened next, as told in Sutta number 10.8 from the Connected Discourses. He lay down with his mindfulness directed to the Buddha, and during the night he got up three times thinking it was morning. Then the householder Anathapindaka approached the gate of the charnel ground. Non-human beings opened the gate. Then as the householder Anathapindaka was leaving the city, the light disappeared and darkness appeared. Fear, trepidation, and terror arose in him, and he wanted to turn back. But the Yaka Sivaka, invisible, made the proclamation. A hundred thousand elephants, a hundred thousand horses, a hundred thousand mule-driven chariots, a hundred thousand maidens adorned with jewelry and earrings are not worth a sixteenth part of a single step forward. Go forward, householder, go forward, householder. Going forward is better for you, not turning back again. Then the darkness disappeared and light appeared to the householder Anathapindaka, and the fear, trepidation, and terror that had arisen in him subsided. The same thing happened a second time and a third time. I won't read the whole verse again. Uh, with fear arising Anathapindaka, the Yakasivaka making his proclamation, and then Anathapindaka's fear once again subsiding. Now the Buddha, having arisen at the first flush of dawn, was walking back and forth in the open. He saw Anathapindaka coming in the distance. In the misty dawn, Anathapindaka saw the Blessed One walking silently to and fro in the cool grove. Then as he approached, the Blessed One descended from the walkway and sat down in the seat that was prepared. He called to Anathapindaka in an indescribably harmonious voice, Come, Sudatta. Then the householder Anathapindaka, thinking, The Blessed One has addressed me by my name. Thrilled and elated, prostrated himself right on the spot with his head at the Blessed One's feet and stammered out, I hope, Bhante, that the Blessed One slept well. The Buddha replied with these verses, Always indeed he sleeps well, the Brahmin who is fully quenched, who does not cling to sensual pleasures, cool at heart without acquisitions. Having cut off all attachments, having removed care from the heart, the peaceful one sleeps well, having attained peace of mind. So, this was a happy meeting indeed, the beginning of Anathapindaka's lifelong devotion to the Buddha. After receiving some Dharma teachings, Anathapindaka then invited the Buddha for a meal the next day at the home of his brother-in-law, and his invitation was accepted. He insisted on paying for that meal by himself, even though his brother-in-law and another wealthy citizen of Rajagaha and Sunny Bambasara, king of Magadha, each offered to chip in. As arranged, the next day the Blessed One proceeded to the merchant's house, accompanied by the Sangha of Bhikkhus, and he sat down on the seat made ready there. As Anathapindaka, then Anathapindaka served with his own hand the Sangha headed by the Buddha and satisfied them with different kinds of good food. When the Blessed One had eaten and no longer had the bowl in his hand, Anathapindaka sat down to one side. He said to the Blessed One, 
Lord, let the Blessed One with the Sangha of Bhikkhus consent to dwell with me at Savati for the rains. The Buddha accepted with this reply. Perfect ones delight in rooms that are void, householder. Another translation would be, the enlightened ones love peaceful places. Anathapindaka indicated that he understood the Buddha's meaning, joyful that his offer had been accepted. So for the three months of the year when it's too rainy to travel around, the rains season, when the monks have to stay put, Anathapindaka was offering to find a place for them to stay in Savati that he would provide. And that's the beginning of the construction of this remarkable uh, monastery, uh, Jetavana, that we'll hear about next. On his return trip from Rajagaha back to Savati, Anathapindaka asked his friends and acquaintances along the way to welcome the Buddha and his Sangha of Bhikkhus and provide for their needs as they made the journey to Savati. The distance between the two cities is about 40 or 45 leagues, which comes out to about 130 miles. I assume that Anathapindaka would have made the trip by chariot, but the Buddha and his followers would have traveled much more slowly on foot. Anyway, it's not like they set out right away. At least several years must have elapsed before the monastery at Savati was actually constructed. Another source reported that despite Anathapindaka's enthusiasm and wealth, years elapsed before the banker was able to provide a grove that would supply a suitable base for the Buddha. In the meantime, Gotama returned to Kapilavatu, which is the city near where he was born. In any case, once Anathapindaka arrived at Savati, he immediately set out to find an appropriate location for the monastery. It had to be neither too close to the city nor too far away. The site should be one that would not be overrun by people during the day or noisy at night. It should be suitable for access by devoted visitors, but also fit for those bent on seclusion. At last, in the chain of hills surrounding the city, he found a beautiful forest glade ideal for the purpose. This was Jetavana, Jeta's grove, which belonged to Prince Jeta, a son of King Pasenadi. Anathapindaka went to the prince and asked to purchase the grove, and the prince told him it was not for sale. He also told him that it was worth 18 million gold coins. When he asked to, allowed, to be allowed to buy it, Jeta's reply was, not even if he would cover the whole place with money. Anathapindaka said that Prince Jeta had named a price and that he would buy it at that price. Prince Jeta answered that he had had no intention of making a bargain, and so the matter went to arbitration. The arbitrator ruled that if the price mentioned were paid, then Anathapindaka had the right of purchase. Anathapindaka had gold brought down in carts and covered Jeta's grove with gold pieces laid side by side. The money brought in the first journey was found insufficient to cover one small spot near the gateway. And so Anathapindaka sent his servants back for more. However, Prince Jeta, inspired by Anathapindaka's earnestness, asked to be allowed to give that spot himself. Anathapindaka agreed, and Jeta erected a gateway there with a room over it. Prince Jeta paid for the gateway out of the proceeds from his sale of the grove, and he also donated trees for timber to be used in the construction of the monastery. The commentaries explain that at the Buddha's suggestion, the site is always referred to as Jetavane Anattapindakasa Arame, which means Jeta's Grove, Anattapindaka's Park, so as to memorialize the names of both of these generous benefactors.
I'm not sure exactly what business Anattapindika was in. The Pali word for his occupation, Sethi, might mean foreman of a guild, treasurer, banker, or wealthy merchant. Hecker describes Anattapindika as the richest merchant in Savathi, and Nyanamoli simply says a rich merchant. From the purchase transaction I just described, I get the impression that whatever he did, Anattapindika must have been a pretty shrewd businessman. He went to King Pasenji's son, Prince Jeta, and succeeded in purchasing a prized piece of real estate that the prince didn't want to sell. I don't understand the details, but getting the better of a royal prince in this way does not sound to me like something that just anybody would have been able to pull off. The monastery Anattapindika had built included individual cells for monks, a meeting hall, a dining room, a dining hall, storerooms, walkways, latrines, wells, and lotus ponds for bathing, as well as a large surrounding wall. One structure often mentioned in the commentaries was the scented hut, which is where the Buddha himself would stay. When all was ready, Anattapindika paid for a splendid ceremony of dedication. We didn't take all of this literally, but the description of the festivities says that Anattapindika's son was attended by 500 other youths, his wife by 500 other noble women, and his daughters by 500 other maidens, and that Anattapindika himself was attended by 500 bankers. <laughs> so it was a big party. There was sumptuous food and there were gifts for everyone. All in all, the festivities connected with the dedication ceremony were said to last for nine months and to cost Anattapindika as much as he had spent earlier on the purchase of the grove. The monastery at Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anattapindika's Park, figures prominently in the Buddha's life and teaching. Over the 45 years of his life as a teacher, the Buddha spent 19 rains seasons and delivered 844 recorded discourses there. When the Buddha was residing at Jetavana, Anattapindika would visit him daily. There and elsewhere, Anattapindika received many teachings from the Buddha, and it is to these that I turn next turn. As Hecker observes, the discourses delivered to Anattapindika constitute a comprehensive code of conduct for the conscientious lay follower of the Buddha, so that Anattapindika has also become a benefactor to all those in future times who are trying to follow the teaching. Unlike most people instructed by the Buddha, Anattapindika almost never asked the Buddha a direct question. This was probably because he did not want to create the impression that he was merely bartering his contributions for personal advice. His donations were for him a matter of the heart, given without any thought of reward for the sheer joy of giving itself. Turning to those teachings, AN 5.43 is a good place to start. Let me read to you how it begins uh, in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. Then the householder Anattapindika approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, and sat down to one side. The Blessed One then said to him, Householder, there are these five things that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and rarely gained in the world. What five? Long life, householder, is wished for, desired, agreeable, and rarely gained in the world. Beauty, happiness, fame, the heavens are wished for, desired, agreeable, and rarely gained in the world. These five things, householder, 
that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and rarely gained in the world, I say, are not obtained by means of prayers or aspirations. If these five things that were, are wished for, desired, agreeable, and rarely gained in the world could be obtained by means of prayers or aspirations, who here would be lacking in anything? Householder, the noble disciple who desires long life ought not to pray for long life or delight in it or passively yearn for it. A noble disciple who desires long life should practice the way conducive to long life. For when he practices the way conducive to long life, it leads to obtaining long life, and he gains long life, either celestial or human. The sutta continues with parallel advice concerning beauty, happiness, fame in the heavens, and ends with a brief verse. Getting past the repetitious language, and the suttas are nothing if not repetitious, uh, this sutta is saying that if you want long life, happiness, etc., then you should conduct yourself in a way conducive to obtaining them. The emphasis here is on self-reliance, on practical, purposive effort here and now. That message is consistent with the Buddha's teaching on dependent origination. Long life and so forth are dependent on causes and conditions, not on prayers or sacrifices or just wanting something really badly without working to obtain it. This theme, the importance of personal effort and initiative, comes up again and again in the suttas. Most important, the Buddha admonished Anattapindika to take personal responsibility for guarding his own mind. In AN 3.109, he speaks to Anattapindika using the imagery of a house with a roof that's badly thatched, allowing rain to get in and rot the roof peak, rafters, and walls, versus a house with a roof that's well thatched in which the roof peak, rafters, and walls are protected. Likewise, the Buddha explains, householder, when the mind is unprotected, bodily, verbal, and mental actions are unprotected. For one whose bodily, mental, and verbal actions are unprotected, uh, bodily, verbal, and mental actions become tainted. This in turn leads to these actions becoming rotten, leading ultimately to a bad death. When one's mind is well guarded, bodily, verbal, and mental actions are wholesome, and one's virtue is maintained. Not surprisingly, several of the teachings given to Anattapindika concerned wealth. In AN 4.62, the Buddha basically tells Anattapindika that being wealthy and enjoying wealth are okay if that wealth is obtained honestly and used appropriately. The Sutta lists four kinds of happiness that may be achieved by a lay person who enjoys sensual pleasures depending on time and occasion. It talks about wealth that a householder has acquired by energetic striving amassed by the strength of his arms earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth righteously gained. When one has acquired wealth in this way, one may take happiness in its ownership. So that's the first kind of happiness, the happiness of ownership. Description of wealth acquired by energetic striving amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth righteously gained, is a stock phrase that found in several suttas. I don't think it's intended to be taken literally. It doesn't quite seem to me to fit the work of a banker, but who knows? Maybe things were different back then. In addition to the happiness of ownership, the second kind of happiness comes when wealth righteously gained is used to perform meritorious deeds like acts of generosity. A third source of happiness is knowledge of one's freedom from debt. The text says, when a householder thinks, I have no debts to anyone, whether large or small, he experiences happiness and joy. This is called the happiness of freedom from debt.
So we've got the happiness of ownership, the happiness of using wealth appropriately, and the happiness of freedom from debt. The Sutta is from the Book of the Force and began by referring to four kinds of happiness. So there's got to be one more. The fourth kind of happiness is blamelessness with regard to bodily, verbal, and mental action. This inclusion of virtuous behavior, of blamelessness, is another major theme in the suttas, but what I find important in this context is that it is clearly possible for a health householder to become wealthy while still maintaining blamelessness in thought, word, and deed. Or since it's bodily, verbal, and mental action, maybe I should say blamelessness in deed, word, and thought. Renunciation is certainly central to monastic practice, and some forms of renunciation can be of great benefit for lay followers as well. But that doesn't mean that being poor is automatically virtuous, or that being rich is automatically suspect. There's no particular connection in either direction between one's wealth and one's virtue. Importantly, the verse at the end of this sutta makes it clear that the happiness of virtue of blamelessness with regard to bodily, verbal, and mental action is far greater than the happiness that comes with ownership or use of wealth or freedom from debt. Referring to these material sources of happiness versus, versus virtuous behavior, the verse concludes. I should have thought about reading versus virtuous verse here. And, and it came out okay. While seeing things clearly, the wise one knows both kinds of happiness. The other kind is not worth a sixteenth part of the bliss of blamelessness. It may be good to pause a moment and think about that. I know from painful experience that violating the precepts has brought suffering to myself and to others, but I pay less attention to the positive side of virtuous behavior. What does bliss of blamelessness mean? On reflection, there does seem to be a deep, abiding satisfaction that comes from knowing oneself to be an ethical person. It's not just about avoiding guilt or staying out of trouble. There is also a positive happiness, which the Buddha told Anattapindaka is much greater than the happiness of being wealthy, doing good deeds, and being debt-free. The Buddha has more to say about proper uses of wealth in another sutta addressed to Anattapindaka in 5.41. Here he lists five appropriate uses for righteous wealth righteously gained. The first of these is for the owner of the wealth to properly maintain herself or himself in happiness. One should make oneself happy and pleased and also care for family members and employees. The second is to share the wealth with friends and companions. The third appropriate use is to make provision with one's wealth against losses that might arise because of fire or floods, kings or bandits, or unloved heirs. The fourth appropriate use of wealth is to make oblations or offerings to relatives, guests, ancestors, the king, and deities. Finally, the fifth appropriate use of wealth is to give alms to worthy ascetics. Not all the specific language here is relevant today. We don't make oblations to ancestors, usually, for example. But making allowance for cultural context, this all sounds pretty sensible, practical, and certainly doable. When wealth comes to one, it should be used to care for oneself and one's family and friends, manage assets prudently, which includes both insurance and estate planning, pay taxes and meet other societal expectations, and also support the Sangha. 
And 4.61, also addressed to Anattapindika, is titled Worthy Deeds. In brief, it first describes four things that are wished for but difficult to obtain in the world, and then lists four things conducive to their attainment. The four things wished for but difficult to obtain are wealth righteously gained, a good reputation, long life, and a fortunate rebirth. The four things conducive to their attainment are faith, virtue, generosity, and wisdom. Each of these four qualities is then further explained. Faith refers to the trust in the enlightenment of the Buddha. Virtuous behavior refers to following the five precepts, abstaining from the destruction of life, taking what is not given, from sexual misconduct, from false speech, and from the use of intoxicants leading to heedlessness. Accomplishment and generosity is described using language found in many suttas. One dwells at home with a mind devoid of the stain of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, one devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. I like that passage, so I'm going to read it again. One dwells at home with a mind devoid of the stain of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, one devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. The description of wisdom in this particular sutta is in terms of the five hindrances. If one is overcome by greed and longing, by ill will, by dullness and drowsiness, restlessness and remorse, or by doubt, then one does what should be avoided and neglects one's duty, so that one's fame and happiness are spoiled. Therefore, wisdom is shown by abandoning greed, ill will, and the rest of the hindrances. So you see, taken together, these teachings that are given to Natapindika really cover just about all the bases. Uh, we haven't come to the Eightfold Path yet, but it'll come up a little bit later, so it's, it's all in there. Even though Anattapindika was not a monastic, he was steeped in the Dhamma and spent time in meditation. This is significant. This is a lay follower, not a monastic. In AN 5.176, the Buddha exhorted Anattapindika and other lay followers not to be content with making donations to the Sangha, but said in addition, Householders, you should train yourselves thus. How can we from time to time enter and dwell in the rapture of solitude? It is in such a way that you should train yourselves. The rapture of solitude, as explained in the commentaries, is referring to the first and second jhanas. Anattapindika is also named in a series of suttas in the Book of the Sixes as one of 21 householders and lay followers who reached certainty about the Tathagata and became a seer of the deathless, one who lives having realized the deathless. This is explained as including unwavering confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, noble virtuous behavior, noble knowledge, and noble liberation. These suttas have been interpreted as saying that some lay followers were arahants, but Bhikkhu Bodhi interprets it as meaning merely that they had reached at least the stage of stream entry. There's also a sutta in 10.93 in which Anattapindika shows his skill as a debater and a teacher of the Dhamma. In this sutta, not surprisingly, a bunch of wanderers of other sects proved to be no match for the man who bested Prince Jada in that real estate deal. Here's how the story unfolds. Anattapindika had set out to go see the Buddha in the middle of the day, but then realized it was not the proper time. So he went instead to the park of the wanderers of other sects, meaning ascetics who were followers of some teacher other than the Buddha. 
These ascetics were sitting around talking noisily, but when they saw Anathapindika, they grew quiet so that he would approach and engage with them. As the Sutta recounts, Then the householder Anathapindika approached those wanderers and exchanged greetings with them. When they had concluded their greetings and cordial talk, he sat down to one side. The wanderers then said to him, Tell us, householder, what is the ascetic Gotama's view? Bhante, I don't know the ascetic Gotama's view in its entirety. So, householder, you say you don't know the ascetic Gotama's view in its entirety. Then tell us, what is the bhikkhu's view? Bhante, I also don't know the bhikkhu's view in its entirety. So, householder, you say you don't know the ascetic Gotama's view in its entirety, and you also don't know the bhikkhu's view in its entirety, then tell us what is your view. It isn't hard for me to explain my view, Bhante, but first explain your own views. Afterwards, it won't be hard for me to explain my view. When this was said, one wanderer said to the householder Anathapindika, The world is eternal. This alone is true, anything else is wrong. Such is my view, householder. Another wanderer said, The world is non-eternal. This alone is true, anything else is wrong. Such is my view, householder. Sutta goes on to list a bunch more conflicting views along the same lines, each expressed with the same degree of certainty. Anathapindika responds by quoting back the first wanderer's view, repeating the same words, and then explains... This view of his has arisen because of his own careless attention or conditioned by someone else's utterance. Now this view has come into being and is conditioned, a project, product of volition, dependently originated. But whatever has come into being and is conditioned, a product of volition, dependently originated, is impermanent. Whatever is impermanent is suffering. It is just suffering that he's attached and holds on to, attached to and holds to. He then applied the same analysis to several other views in turn. The wanderers of other sects then retort by saying that Anathapindika's own view is subject to the same criticism, but he rebuts their argument saying, having clearly seen what is suffering as it really is with correct wisdom thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself, I understand as it really is the superior escape from it. When this was said, those wanderers sat in silence, disconcerted, hunched over, downcast, glum, and speechless. <laughs> Anathapindika then went to the Blessed One and recounted the entire conversation. And the Blessed One said, Good, good, householder, it is in such a way that these hollow men should from time to time be thoroughly refuted by reasoned argument. He then gave Anathapindika a Dharma talk and later... After Anathapindika had departed, he told the bhikkhus that in that same situation, they should respond exactly as Anathapindika had done. I think the message here is that even in areas where we can't really know what's true or false, people form strong views and defend them vigorously, sometimes angrily. If we pay careful attention, we can see that there is no way of knowing if such beliefs are true or not. Often they've just been passed along from someone else who did, had no way of knowing either. Clinging to such views, letting them become a part of one's identity, leads to suffering. The idea that it's pointless to argue over such things is found again and again in the suttas, as is the wise reflection, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. <clears throat> like all mortals, 
Anantapindika had bad times as well as good. His wealth was considerably diminished by the purchase of Prince Cheta's grove, the construction of the monastery there, and the dedication festivities. Sometime after that, he suffered further losses due to a large loan he made that was not repaid on, a, on time, as well as losses due to fluttering, flooding and a natural disaster. For a time, he became so poor that even though he continued to offer alms food to the Sangha of bhikkhus, all he had to give them was broken rice accompanied by rice gruel. In AN 9.20, Anattapindika tells this to the Buddha, and the Buddha reassures him that if, householder, one gives alms, whether coarse or excellent, what matters is that one gives respectfully, gives considerately, gives with one's own hand, gives what would not be discarded, gives with a view of future consequences. So we're reminded that the virtue of generosity can be cultivated by everyone, whether rich or poor. What matters is not the amount of the gift, but the quality of generosity with which it is given. There was also a time when Anattapindika was sick, recounted in the Connected Discourses, number 55.26. He sent for the Venerable Sariputta, who of course came to see him, accompanied by the Venerable Ananda. The Venerable Sariputta asks Anattapindika how he's doing. The answer is, the pain is pretty bad. And then he reminds Anattapindika of his trust in the Buddha, concluding by saying, as you consider within yourself that confirmed confidence in the Buddha, your pains may subside on the spot. He next reminds Anattapindika of his confirmed faith in the Dhamma, his faith in the Sangha, his virtuous conduct, and his adherence to right view, right intention, and each of the remaining factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, concluding each time with, as you consider within yourself that quality, your pains may subside on the spot. And sure enough, when Sariputta finished, the Sutta reports that the pains of the householder Anathapindika subsided on the spot. Anathapindika then offered a meal to Sariputta and Ananda, after which the venerable Sariputta thanked him in verse and the two monks departed. Perhaps the most famous teaching given to Anathapindika was offered at the time of his final illness. This sutta is found in the middle-length discourse, is number 143, which is titled, Advice to Anathapindika. This time, Anathapindika sends someone to notify both the Buddha and Sariputta of his illness and asks that Sariputta come to see him. As before, Sariputta comes accompanied by Ananda. The teaching this time is different, not about pains subsiding, but instead about not clinging to anything in the world. Anathapindika is instructed as follows. Householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to the eye, and my consciousness will not be dependent on the eye. Thus you should train. You should train thus. I will not cling to the ear. I will not cling to the nose. I will not cling to the tongue. I will not cling to the body. I will not cling to the mind, and my consciousness will not be dependent on the mind. Thus you should train. Householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to forms. I will not cling to sounds. I will not cling to odors. I will not cling to flavors. I will not cling to tangibles. I will not cling to mind objects, and my consciousness will not be dependent on mind objects. Thus you should train. These last two paragraphs were about not clinging to the organs of perception, the eye, ear, and so on, and not clinging to the objects of perception, forms, sounds, and so on. Sariputta then went on to instruct Anattapindika 
not to cling to the consciousness arising at any of the sense doors, not to cling to contact at any of the sense doors, not to cling to feelings arising with contact, not to cling to any of the traditional elements, earth, water, fire, air, space, or consciousness, not to cling to the bases of any of the formless attainments, and not to cling to this world or to the world beyond. Finally, Sariputta concluded by saying, Householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought after, and examined by the mind, and my consciousness will not be dependent on that. Thus you should train. After hearing this, Anattapindika wept and told Sariputta and Ananda that in all the years he had known the Buddha and his disciples, he had never heard such a talk on the Dhamma. Sariputta explained that, quote, such talk on the Dhamma householder is not given to lay people clothed in white. Such talk on the Dhamma is given to those who have gone forth. Anattapindika then urged that this teaching be given to lay followers as well as to monastics because there will be those who will understand. Shortly after Sariputta and Ananda left, Anattapindika died, and according to the Sutta, he reappeared in the Tusita heaven. The Sutta goes on to recount that then, when the night was well advanced, Anattapindika, now a young god of beautiful appearance, went to the Blessed One, illuminating the whole of Jeta's grove. After paying homage to the Blessed One, he stood to one side and addressed the Blessed One in stanzas, praising the Buddha and Sariputta and admonishing all who are wise to follow the Dhamma. Now, the lifespan of devas in the Tusita heaven is supposed to be many, many thousands of years, so Anattapindika may well be there still. Meanwhile, the monastery at Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anattapindika's park, is long gone. In one of his books, Stephen Batchelor recounts his visit to the site of the ancient city of Savati. His account begins with the mention of his driver, Mr. Khan. Early next morning, Mr. Khan drives me out to the site of the long-abandoned city. It is quiet and deserted. I climb up the most prominent mound of brickwork, which conceivably might mark the spot where King Pisanides' palace once stood. From there, I can make out a ring of almost continuous mounds, which would once have been the ramparts. Beyond them, fields and occasional trees stretch in all directions to the hazy green horizon. There is no sign of the Achiravati, the great river that, in Gautama's time, made the city into a thriving port. All that remains of the mighty capital of Kosala is an unexcavated expanse of rubble-strewn shrubland, home to an occasional jackal and peacock. Through my telephoto lens, I peer at a colony of painted storks roosting in a solitary silk cotton tree among the ruins. Every couple of minutes, one of them takes off and climbs laboriously into the sky, a little pink and white pterodactyl. The ruins of Jeta's Grove lie about a mile away. Anattapindika's luxurious park is now a well-excavated archaeological site laid out around prim lawns in tidy flower beds, cordoned off by iron railings from the throng of whining beggars and purveyors of religious trinkets and soft drinks outside. Pathways meander past piles of bricks, some more extensive than others, the floors, walls, and wells of what once were monasteries and temples. A prominent raised structure in the middle of the park has been identified as the site of Gotama's scented hut. This serves as the focal point for pilgrims who rub onto the brickwork little squares of gold leaf that shimmer and tremble in the breeze. 
A group of white-clad Sri Lankans sits cross-legged upon its hallowed surface, their palms placed together, chanting a nasal Pali. They leave in their wake smoldering sticks of sweet Indian incense, flower petals, and candles. Thank you. <laughs>